Okay, let's try this again. Welcome to Prophecy Nation on Notice Podcast. Um, this week I've been talking about gain of function research. That's what leading got me, um, and what to say and how to say it. And this is something that God revealed to me that the evil behind the gain of function research is now surfacing and God wants to deal with it and God wants to hold the people accountable for the evil behind the evil things that have been done with gain of function research. So you can't play God. There's only one God. Man cannot be God. Ask Satan how well that worked out, okay? He tried to be God. He wanted to be God. He got himself kicked out, and we know what his end is going to be. Come on, somebody say hallelujah. So gain-of-function research, um, I'm putting the comments and the definition of it, what it is, and why we need to be concerned, exactly what got us into this whole COVID situation, gain-of-function research, okay? And who who are the big people behind gain-of-function research? Do you guys know? Are you guys woke? See, God is not going to leave us in the dark. He wants us to be woken up so we can see what's going on how to pray how to intercede and have a voice and make these people accountable in jesus mighty name and uh, i'm gonna be coming back and playing some clips on her uh, i think we need to reiterate the constitution uh the declaration of independence i'm gonna go over all that see this what prophet to the nation is all about that's how god deals with me with things in the nation and bring it back to the people's remembrance while we're living busy lives from day to day forgetting what's really important and who got the power in Jesus mighty name. And um I was just I'm gonna play a clip that was sent in to me by an interview and I'm just gonna just let y'all listen to it. I'm gonna let you just take a listen. I mean bring it back some. And the clip I got per on this this clip I got are experiments on orphans. It's gonna speed it up. It's gonna tie in to some of the times that into the time that we are in now this clip this interview was back in 2014 and now we're in 2021 and still gain of function research and y'all need to just go back and study i'm not going to tell you everything like i want you to go and look it up for yourself go research it for yourself and so and then like and then ask god to reveal to you is this a good thing for a country is this a bad thing for a country is it going to harm me? Oh, obviously so. Look at COVID, okay? Gain-of-function research. And now, what I was reading earlier, and they were talking about it on the news, that they renamed gain-of-function research. I can't remember what they, I got to go back into my notes. I don't have my notes in front of me. What they renamed it so they could hide behind it and to make it seem like they're not doing it, but they're still doing it. And it's a problem. It's a big problem in a major way. And it's been a problem for years, and we're just now catching up with it have you on the show this morning uh liam i i um let me play it back i'm gonna play it back here um, we go we have joining us from um seattle washington uh investigative uh, reporter uh liam a chef to talk to us about um this awful 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 story liam good morning Good morning, Liz. And you're coming to us from Seattle, so it's really, really, really good, good early, early morning. Your, your show is, I believe it's called The Wake Up Call. That is correct. That's what it is. That's exactly right. That's why we're calling you in Seattle to have you on the show this morning. Yeah. Uh, Liam, I, I um, uh, as, as I was preparing for this story, and, and, I, and, I, and I must say that um, my intern, um, uh, Emily Skates, has been on this um, uh, from the very beginning. And every time that she would come into my office to tell me something else about um, what she had found, it just, it's, this is a huge story that, that involved a whole lot of things that you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily uh, think would be attached to this story. 
the story is uh, complicated. It involves uh, our perceptions of the medical establishment of how we think about the disease called AIDS, how we think about HIV testing, how we think about pharmaceutical companies. And uh, I, I think for me, it was a real revelation. I mean, I understood that I understood there were problems in the country. I've lived in a lot of cities. I understood that racism is real and exists, and it's more or less instituted uh, economically uh, in, in cities. I, I didn't understand the, the extent to which, and I'll explain what I mean, but in a sense, racial profiling <laughs> plays a role in interpreting uh, disease uh, and and. And I'll be glad to explain what I mean, but maybe I should just launch into the... Well, why don't we start with the house that, that AIDS built? Okay. Uh, uh, my name's Liam Sheff. I'm an independent journalist. In 2003, I was working on a little paper in Boston, and uh, I had a great editor there, and he let me uh, do a series, and the series was called uh, The most the AIDS Debate, the most controversial story you've never heard. And the reason I decided to do this series was I, I became aware in, in the medical literature that the, the word on AIDS was very different than the word on AIDS in the in the public uh, perception, the advertisements, and that AIDS in the medical literature looked like a complicated, multifactorial illness. Now, I'm going to talk about AIDS today from the what I'll, what I'll call the non-religious point of view. Uh, there are people who sort of worship at this medical altar and don't allow any discussion or dispute. That's not me. So the people who are going to be a little upset or challenged or whatever by what I say will hold on to your hats and get a pen and start taking notes, and you can do the research and see if it's correct. Um, the the non-religious point of view of AIDS says that it's this multifactorial thing that, you know, the, the religious view says it has one cause, the sexually transmitted virus. The problem is nobody knows how really or if this thing is sexually transmitted. There's very little evidence good evidence for strong sexual transmission in the medical literature. What you have instead are people all over the world getting sick with a variety of illnesses that are now said to be immune suppressed, that they have acquired immune deficiency. Uh, in the early 80s, there was a group of uh, men in the, in the gay community who were using, uh, late 70s really, were using a lot of drugs, a lot of recreational drugs, having a lot of sex, had a lot of STDs, and they got sick for what appears to be a variety of reasons, not, not, not the least of which would be drug toxicity and, and, and toxicology, uh, uh, over-intoxification over periods of years. This is another, by the way, the gay community is another community that's pushed to the outside and not uh, treated as well as the standard white community in this culture. Um, in that community, guys were getting sick. They went into the hospitals. They were given very toxic drugs, chemotherapies, et cetera. A lot of them died. The first idea was in, in what was called GRID or gay-related immune disease was that they had, in a sense, long-term drug poisoning from a variety of things, uh, coupled with other lifestyle factors. But there were some doctors who were working in, in virology, and they wanted to say that it was a single-cause illness. It didn't make any sense to say it was a single-cause illness because the guys who were getting sick had a lot of a lot of things going on. But, but this is a political story as well. A political be, story. Because it's, it's easier politically to, to, to make it one, one cause as opposed to a bunch of different causes. Right. And, and I realize this is controversial for people. I don't, you don't have to accept it as gospel. You can look it up. It's in, it's in a, a variety of medical publications. The story's been told over and over again. But the political definition 
that acquired immune deficiency as experienced in this early gay population has one single cause, which we now call HIV. Now, you can look in the body, you can always find viruses, you can always find little bits and pieces of things. Does it cause it, does it not? I'll leave that to the researchers. What you do find is that in places like Africa, the definition has to be rewritten. So the, the population, the population of, of uh, people here in the United States and Europe who were getting sick in that way were 100% drug abusers and gay men. Then the CDC expanded the definition and they included hemophiliacs. Now, they just expanded the definition and they expanded it again. Now, this was a legal thing, not a, not a biologic thing. They just said we're going to include more symptoms and more people in this definition, this growing definition. Africa got thrown into the definition in 1985. The definition of AIDS in Africa was always clinical. It never had anything to do with virology or anything related to what was happening in the game. And, uh, I realize it's a controversial foot to start in, but this is how I got into the story, and I'll, I'll, I'll end it just about here. In Africa, the definition of AIDS was, was called the Bangui definition after the capital of the Central African Republic called Bangui. Uh, because the World Health Organization presided over uh, by members of our CDC, uh, that's our Centers for Disease Control, a guy called Joseph McCormick, it's uh, in his biography, uh, Virus Hunters of the CDC, said that AIDS in Africa would always be defined by clinical symptoms like diarrhea, fever, weight loss, uh, of up to 10% of your body weight over a period of a month or so. Well, when I was a kid, I went to, uh, I was in Southern Europe, I was in Greece, and uh, I drank water out of a tap, and uh, I lost about 10% of my body weight in the next couple of days. I had fever, diarrhea, I was delirious. By any standard uh, World Health Organization definition, I had uh, clinical AIDS. Of course, what I had was water poisoning. Uh, and in Africa, what you have in Sub-Saharan Africa is uh, 50, 60% of the population by reasonable estimates of the population that does not have clean water. They don't have uh, sewage reclamation. Uh, 50 to 60% of the rural population drinks water that they share with uh, other human populations, uh, animal runoff, human waste, trash. Uh, any good epidemiologist in Africa will tell you that it's impossible to separate what we call AIDS from absolute destitute poverty. Uh, so, I wrote a series called uh, the, the AIDS Debate, and it was a three-part series. It got a lot of press. Then, because I was writing about AIDS, again, from this critical point of view, what, what are we calling AIDS, how are we treating it, I was contacted by a woman in New York, and the woman uh, had two kids. She's their aunt. She adopted them. Uh, their mother, their natural mother, was a drug user in New York City. Uh, when a lot of people ended up using uh, crack in New York and other cities. Now, there there might be some political intrigue to that story that you might be aware about. Um, some people have covered how cheap cocaine got into cities. Of course, I've had Maxine Waters on the show to talk about that. And, uh, you know, there's, there's something, too, that's worth talking about. Uh, there were a lot of babies born to moms uh, who were using crack in the, in the 80s. And this became something of a mini epidemic. Uh, this place in New York City and near Harlem called Incarnation Children's Center was established by these nuns, the Catholic Church, uh, to take in these border babies, these babies abandoned at the hospital. And they were doing, I think, you know, 
doctors who ran and who got involved with Incarnation Children's Center uh, are from Columbia Presbyterian, Columbia University. And they decided that this orphan population was a good population to test new drugs on. They didn't misspeak. <laughs> they decided that this orphan population was uh, just the right population to test uh, new and various drugs on. And in 1992, according to ICC's own printed history, with uh, funding from the National Institutes of Health, that's our government. So they got so they got money from our good government to begin. That's, that's us, doctors, medical doctors who take the Hippocratic oath that thou shalt do no harm. Thought of the idea of testing babies, infants, orphan infants, and our government said, "Bet, let me give you some money for that." Absolutely, and the money came in, and ICC became a recipient of a, a lot of funds. Uh, Were the nuns still involved? The, the nuns were there to oversee uh, sort of daily uh, caretaking activities. And, and my word from my sources, I think we're going to have one of my sources on later, is that the nuns were very loving and very caring. Now, they were excised from the place in the late 90s totally, but in the early 90s they were still there. The guy who runs the place or ran it and established what ICC became is uh, Dr. Stephen Nicholas. And Stephen Nicholas is considered one of the, uh, you know, one of the most vaunted doctors, the, the, the doctors with the most awards, with people just singing his praises. Why? Because he worked with these poor babies. Well, mm. what, what he did was he allowed this population to be used in clinical trials. All right. Now, good, good papers like the New York Times like to say, like to defend uh, what, what, what happened there by saying that these children were given the, ba the best medical care and otherwise they would have died. Now, there's a problem in, in AIDS theory, and, and the problem is the major contention of AIDS theory, and that is that if you test HIV positive, you have the disease that gay men in the early 80s got, and you're going to die. Now, we know that that's not true clinically. We know that... Why do we know that? We know that what happened in the early 80s was, uh, at least with any kind of clear-headed analytic review of the medical literature, was specific to a time and place. We know that what we call AIDS in Africa is totally dependent on uh, toxicology, clinical symptoms, poverty. The other reason that we know testing HIV positive doesn't mean that you're going to get either of these kind of historically uh, uh, instituted or, or, you know, specific diseases is that HIV tests don't test for any particular virus. Now, to add controversy to controversy, I'm just going to get all the way into it. Yeah, you are. Uh, HIV tests don't test for viruses. Now, anybody who says otherwise is really itching for a good fight because it says inside of the HIV test, and this is in all of my reporting, this test should not be used as a clinical test or a diagnostic test for HIV. And the reason that these tests warn that they're not supposed to be used is they don't test for a virus. They test for antibodies. They test for proteins, or they test for little slivers of genetic material, which are sort of copied out of your own white blood cells. Now, that's different than saying that they go into the body and find a virus. They don't. If you have um, dysentery, if you have tuberculosis, malaria, um, herpes, uh, alcoholic uh, liver disease, if you have a damaged liver, if you're pregnant, pregnant. Let me say that again. If you're pregnant, this is one of the things that it says inside of HIV tests that can make these protein tests, these reactions, 
come up reactive. If you're the child of a drug user uh, and you have a lot of antibodies in your blood or you're having one of these tests enforced on you, uh, it's not difficult to have a reactive test. But that doesn't mean that you're HIV positive. It simply does not mean that you're HIV positive. The other problem with HIV testing is that it's, it's, it, it's what, it has to go through what's called a risk group analysis. If you're not in a risk group, you're not very likely to be tested. Um, this is sort of the end of the, the controversial part of the, the talk. But if you're not in a risk group, and this is what it says in the medical literature, I, I gave you, I sent you some examples that were, that were published there. Right, and they're up on the website at lizbrown.com. Right. So, you know, you get, you get, uh, you get citations like this from the standard literature. There, this is a short quote and they're talking about the, uh, the error rate. Now nobody hears about this. I'm talking about the error rate in HIV tests. This is from, uh, 1998 when the new tests, the rapid tests were first being marketed. This is a quote from a journal called AIDS Alert. Uh, and they say the error rate won't matter, which they consider high, won't matter much in areas with a high prevalence of HIV because in all probability the people testing false positive will have the disease. So they're talking about if we're testing people that are in the high risk group, doesn't matter that there's a lousy error rate because they're probably going to have it anyway. Right. What does that mean? It means that they're going to have symptoms that we consider to be what we now call AIDS, acquired immune deficiency. What are the symptoms? A cough, a fever, uh, you know, a chronically suppressed immune system. Anybody living in poverty has that. Any drug user has that. Anybody living in rural Africa has any of those symptoms at any time. Okay, hold on. Okay, go ahead. And and then we'll get right back into ICC. But if the same test was performed on, (laughs) I couldn't believe this when I read this, but if the same test was performed on a 1,000 white affluent suburban housewives, a low prevalence population, in all likelihood, all positive results will be false, and positive predictive values plummet to zero. These tests are totally dependent on the, the group that you're, you're testing, not the test itself. It's not an accurate test. It's a test for sort of perception about whether this group has a disease that we think that people in the early 80s had, blah, 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 blah. These tests are not testing for a virus. That's what they're not testing for. And we're going to take a break here. I'm talking to Liam Sheff, independent investigative reporter. He's joining us from Seattle, Washington. We're talking about an article he wrote, The House That AIDS Built. We're talking about experimentation on orphans. We're talking about AIDS. Uh, We're talking about racism. We're talking about America. We're talking about experimentation by doctors funded by our government on orphans to test them for AIDS. My guest this morning joining us from Seattle, Washington, is Liam Sheff. He is the investigative reporter that uh, broke this story. Liam, welcome back. Liam. Let's jump right back in. Um, Incarnation Children's Center is this orphanage in Washington Heights, uh, just north of Harlem. And this was established in the 90s to take care of these abandoned border babies. That's what we were talking about in the first half hour. Uh, in 92, the NIH decided that this population was uh, going to be as good as any to test drugs on. Aren't there rules against testing on children? Yes, there are. Uh, aren't there the FCC, I mean, I mean, not the FCC, but the... Uh, the NIH rules against, uh, uh, National Institute of Health rules against using wars of the state in clinical trials. But... And, how, and did they get, how did they get around this? Well... You get around it by appealing to public sympathy. And the reason I started by talking about the, the, really what I consider the, 
uh, the messy and, in, I think, relative, you know, inaccurate definition that we, that, with this thing that we call AIDS is, if you go with the definition of AIDS that we have, which is a single cause, sing, you know, illness with no cure, blah, 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 caused by one thing, instead of what it, what it, what it appears to be, the multifactorial, complex, treatable uh, uh, illness that occurs around the world because of poverty, tox, you know, drug toxicity, and other things, if you go with the first view, you can do anything you want. So basically they're saying these babies have a death sentence anyway. It doesn't matter what we do. We can just do anything we need to do. We're saving their lives. And if you think that I'm making that line up, you ought to read the New York Times more. I, I was investigated the, this story for two years. Now, the deal with Incarnation Children's Center is it started as a nice place, and it became, uh, I think, a very bad place, uh, a place where kids were used in drug trials with drugs like AZT and Nevirapine. These are black box label drugs. They've killed adults, uh, pregnant women in uh, standard use. They uh, are drugs that affect your genetic material. AZT stops your cells from replicating. Uh, Nevirapine interrupts the normal uh, transfer of genetic information in your cell. The side effects or the major unwanted effects of the drugs include liver failure, death, skin death. And when I say skin death from Nevirapine, I mean large chunks of your skin die. And, and that's a lot of the pictures that you've included in your article, the house that AIDS built, showed babies with skin just off of them. Uh, yeah, there's a, there are pictures from a European Nevirapine trial in which young uh, trial subjects actually have large chunks of skin coming off. Now, that's not the most common effect, and people will say, well, it only occurs in 6% or 12% or whatever they say. Now, I talked to a rep from Boringer, uh, the company that makes the drug, Boringer Ingelheim, and she said that she felt they were underreporting. Let's put it at 10%. Let's say 10% of people who are on Nevirapine for a while are going to die because their skin comes off. Mm. That's not a cure for AIDS. Mm. Uh, AZT, uh, let's put it at 2%. That's not a cure for AIDS. We, we wouldn't accept that for any other illness, but we, we accept the idea uh, without questioning that AIDS is a, not, that acquired immune deficiency. Remember, that's what it stands for. Immune deficiency as one cause all over the world if, and I want to be clear, if you're black or you're gay. If you have immune deficiency and you're outside of these groups, you're not in the risk group and you're just not tested. And that is not an exaggeration. That is repeated again and again in the medical literature. Do not test people who are not in risk groups. You'll get false positive results. Um, so so we're, we're using toxic drugs on infants. We're using toxic drugs on children, toxic drugs that cause genetic mutation, organ failure, bone marrow death, bodily de uh, deformations, brain damage, and fatal skin disorders. We're using that on orphans. Oh we're using that on orphans, and we're saying we're doing them a favor. And the New York Times came out, and after I reported on this story for two years, after a BBC movie uh, got made about it, after the Associated Press did a totally unrelated independent investigation without me, without contacting me, they came to their own conclusions that this was happening, that these drugs were very toxic. Uh, the New York Times came out and asked the, asked the doctor, is anything bad happening? Which doctor? The doctor set up the program, Dr. Stephen Nicholas, who's not even there anymore. Asked him, him and him alone. Is AZT a good drug? Yes, he said, it's a great drug. And then they asked him also the question, has any child died as a result of this? And what was his answer? It was a legal answer. I know as a lawyer, there's a legal answer. He said, not that I'm aware of. Not that I'm aware of. He didn't say nobody died. He said, not that I'm aware of. He, also, he was also asked the question, were there any unexpected results? 
from the drug trials with AZT, with nevirapine, uh, at Incarnation Children's Center. No, there were no unexpected results. What's an expected result from AZT? Organ failure, death, <laughs> deformation, failure to thrive, uh, all of the illnesses that we call AIDS. Now, here's the clever thing. Because the definition of AIDS is so flexible, and that's why I started talking, uh, my, my talk with, with talking about what AIDS is, because the definition of, is so flexible, because you can call it just about anything you want, guess what happens when these kids die? They die of AIDS. Now, they've been taking AZT since they were born. I mean, AZT is a drug that's killed uh, so many adult gay men that, it, it, I mean, it, it was considered just the most heinous drug ever to come around. Uh, it was an old chemotherapy drug. It was dumped into the gay community from the 60s, the 1960s. It was not an AIDS drug. Uh, it was an old cancer chemotherapy drug. It was very, very toxic. It was dumped into the uh, gay population in about 87. AIDS deaths uh, after the introduction of AZT doubled and quadrupled. They went up about four times uh, by 92, 93 from where they were in 87. And AZT was being handed out like uh, Tic Tacs, like Pez, uh, in very high doses. And, you know, there's very few people will sort of defend AZT, except, of course, not in the medical literature, but in the New York Times. Well, I, and, and I want to, I want to, I want to get back to to ICC, and I want to get back to the grandmother that that contacted you, and I want you to tell her story. Sorry. And uh, Liam, we have um, Mimi uh, Pasquale on the line. Talk to us about who Mimi is. Uh, Mimi was a childcare worker at uh, Incarnation Children's Center for about ten years. Um, Mimi cared for the children at ICC, she was also uh, responsible for drugging them. Now, Mimi's not a nurse. She wasn't trained as a nurse. In fact, none of the women in the early uh, experience at, at Incarnation were, were nurses who were giving the kids these drugs. Mimi Let gave the kids the drugs uh, daily, nightly, all through the night. Um, okay, let me get Mimi here on the line. Mimi, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm okay. I'm outstanding. Uh, Mimi, Liam was, was describing some of your, your duties as, as a, a uh, ICC worker, um, incarnate uh, children's center worker. Talk to us about uh, what were some of, the, some of the things that you, you did with the children with regard to giving them drugs. Um, we were actually giving them meds. We were responsible for, for everything, basically, day-to-day um, clothes, food, um, and meds was part of their, you know, day-to-day. So, What did you see? How did the children respond to, the, as you call them, the meds that you were giving them? Um, some of them didn't want to take it, and, you know, some of them, because we're dealing with them so much on a daily basis, like a mother, they would just take it, you know, just to get it over with for you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, every case was different. Every child was different. Well, the children that talked about the, that they didn't want to take it, what, what kind of, were they, they serious about this? Were they adamant about this? How did they express this to you? Well, the older ones, you know, when I first started working, they were just babies, so they really couldn't talk, so just throw it, put it right back up. And um, as they got older, and they started, you know, saying, men's refusal, Med refusal, med refusal, when they refused it X amount of time. Why did they refuse it? What were some of the physical reasons that they were saying, I don't want this? Um, some of them, they, they they made them so sick that they couldn't get up and go to school. Or when they were in school, they couldn't function like regular kids. So they just didn't, you know, they didn't want it when for they, whatever reason. When they got sick, what kind of symptoms did they display? Um, stomach cramping, mostly that, and, and constant diarrhea. 
you know, they wouldn't allow them to stay focused in a classroom like a regular child would. So I'm sleepy. A lot of the kids, you know, they were um, drugged so much that they were just tired. They just couldn't function. And, Mimi, when the children refused to t- take the drugs, um, what would happen to them? You could only refuse X amount of times. After that, um, you get a tube inserted into a G-tube. A G-tube was inserted into, into the children. The uh, did, did you insert that, or how did, how did they oh, do Oh, no, that, those are surgically um, put in. So they were sent to doctors to get tubes that, that to put into their bellies to take the drugs. Yeah. Um, Mimi, when you would watch the children as you were uh, uh, putting the, 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 these, these, these drugs, these medications into them, were you, were you, what, what did you see, the, the infants? How did you see the infants respond to this? Um, you know, at first with meds, it's not like the only direct thing you see, okay, yeah, you get a little diarrhea or a little, um, not a little, you get diarrhea or you'll throw up. And that was like, for us, it, it became so so regular that it was like, okay, this is normal. And um, after a while, you know, other kids will react different. Maybe one will break up in a rash. One of my kids um, came in and um, a couple of months later, you know, she came in, she was fine. She had a stroke and she went blind. And you know, after, after being given these meds. Yeah. Supposedly her case was um, she wasn't told, she wasn't aware of her HIV status. So so, so Mimi, when did you see with with as you kept? How long were you there? How long were you at ICC? Almost ten years. Were the kids getting better with the med, with the the stuff you were putting into them, or were they getting worse? Um, every like I said, every child is different. I noticed that the kids that had um, mental issues, like the medicines, really didn't even phase them at all. They wasn't even taking that medicine. There was other kids that, you know, the moment you gave them medicine, they, their body was just rejected but from whatever it means, throwing up, diarrhea, rashes, um, stroke. It was just rejected. Every case is different. Do you feel after, after now that you're, you're, you're no longer working for ICC, are you? No, every year. Do, okay. After, after having time to be away from ICC and having, after having time to, to look back on, on what you were doing, do you feel that, that what you did with the med, what you were told to do with the medications, um, you think it, it made the kids better? Mm, no, no. That, that, no. And, and, I mean, it's, you know what? You to live longer is one thing, but to live longer in pain and to have all these, you know, complications like I saw the kids having. Like, yeah, you're 18, but now you're growing a breast. You're a boy, or you know, your your body's been through so much damage that you look deformed. I don't think that's a quality of life. Can I can I add one thing? Sure. The perception there, uh, and this is sort of drummed into everybody's head, is that the drugs will make you live longer. But longer than what? Longer than the perception that you're supposed to die at a certain age. So they'll say that the effects are very, 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 very strong, terrible, as Mimi says, a girl who had never been told that she was positive, therefore never took the drugs and was not sick, came in, and within a few months on these drugs, AZT and others, had a stroke, went blind, and died a few months later. Can't tell me that she lived longer. I don't think Mimi would say that either. But the general perception, you know, from doctors who want to defend this kind of thing is, yeah, they'll live longer than, than what? 
not than they lived than they were supposed to live. Who decided? The doctors decided. <laughs> and, if, and if the prognosis is that you're going to die, I guess any day past that is, is something that, that you could argue is proof of your, your argument. It's a, it's a circular, it's, it's very circular logic, and it only works in favor of the drug companies, not the children. Yeah, like I told, I was talking to Liam, and I told him that, and if you think that they're going to live as long as you guys say you are, why don't you guys make a plan for them to live well? And no, did, did other nurses talk about, about, did you all sit down and talk about, or not nurses, but, but workers, because you weren't a nurse. Did you all sit down and talk about how the babies were, were, were faring at, under these drugs? Every day it was and you knew a conversation, but you just can improve it and comes you know, everybody had their own opinions as well. There's some people that believe others have to suffer and others others to live. No one you know, because if it's not you, who else is going to do it? And who's going to care for them like you care for them? And a lot of the girls adopt these children, too. So you get attached to them, and you, you really think that you're doing a good. It, it, and especially with, with, with studies, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. It took us X amount of years to really say, wow, look what happened to so-and-so from the state came in. It's where he's at. Did you feel bad about that? Of course. Okay. Of course. We're going to have to take a break. Um, uh, I'm keeping Liam on. Mimi, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the Wake thank Up Call. Thank you for having me. Um, uh, my goodness, we are talking about um, experimentation, AIDS experimentation, a, a, a willingness to experiment um, on orphans, a willingness to experiment on Africans, uh, a... Um, it's really um, a, a revealing story about um, what is done and who it's done to in the name of, of, of medicine. Uh, we started this morning talking to an investigative reporter, uh, Liam Sheff. He's joining us from Seattle, Washington, and we're going to take the story from um, – New York, from the United States to Africa in just a moment, because we are also joined by a doctor, Jonathan Fishbein. He's a former National Institute of Health employee. He's in Maryland. But, but I want to go back to um, uh, Liam for one second, because I, I want Liam to add to the story, of, because I'm sure many of you are asking the question, well, these these were orphans. Nobody could speak for them about what was happening to them, if it was good, if it was bad. The experimentation that was taking place at ICC, Incarnation Children's Center. But these weren't exactly, sometimes these weren't exactly um, orphans. Uh, Liam, welcome back. Hi, Liam. Talk to us about the story of, of the grandmother and, and her grandbabies and her efforts to get them out of the control of this uh, experimentation. Absolutely. Uh, Mona. Uh, She's probably listening today, and I, I asked her to listen in so she can consider coming on the show. Um, she's the great aunt, actually, of okay. two kids. Uh, her niece was a drug user using crack uh, and other drugs. The kids were born and immediately put on AZT, um, this very, very toxic drug. Uh, now, Mona was very close with her niece, the, the natural mother, and when the niece realized she wasn't going to be able to take care of the kids, she asked Mona to take them in and raise them as her own, which Mona did. Um, 
Mona's a, an educated woman. Uh, she works in uh, education. She's got her master's degree. She gave the little boy, uh, Sean, in the story, the house that AIDS built, um, that's what he's called, uh, this drug that, came, that he came with. The drug was AZT, liquid AZT, or uh, retrovir. Uh, and she says, you know, that she gave it to him because that's what the doctor said to do, but she watched him sort of waste. Uh, and have a lot of trouble moving and have a lot of trouble walking around, and he wasn't developing. He had a tube going up his nose, uh, down his throat, and he lived on Pediashore, which is this sort of fatty, milky, uh, sugary substance that they give to sick people. Um, because he couldn't take, he couldn't use regular food. He couldn't, he couldn't keep food down. Uh, one of the effects that Mimi, uh, Pasquale, who, who just was on the, the line with us, um, talked about was that the kids throw up a lot from these drugs. Uh, that was something that the doctor who runs uh, ICC, uh, Catherine Painter, told me. Kids throw up a lot, have trouble taking the medication, so they put in tubes. So Sean came with his drug. Mona, who's uh, the, the guardian, the legal guardian, decided to investigate the drug. She decided to make an informed choice about what she was doing. She looked into AZT. She looked into the effects. She found it was pretty toxic. She decided to slow down the heavy, heavy doses. She did, and the boy started to be able to eat a little bit more and to get around a little bit more. She then decided, after doing this, to stop this one drug, AZT. It's a black box label drug, <laughs> a drug with, with warnings that it can kill you. And how old was Sean at the time? Uh, three. Sean was three. And he'd been on this drug his whole life. Uh, she took him off, and she said it wasn't overnight, but in a few weeks, he, he could do things he couldn't do. He could walk on his own uh, more easily. He could get around the apartment. He, uh, within a couple of months, he was able to run and play with other kids. And this is something he'd never been able to do, and she was just ecstatic. She but she made a mistake. Thrilled. She made a mistake, didn't she? Well, it didn't seem to her that she did. She went to the medical authorities in New York and said, uh, I've got great news. This boy, Sean, is doing really, really well. I've taken him off the AZT. They said, uh-uh. They sent an uh, infectious disease specialist to her apartment. Uh, they uh, Sorry, ACS, Administration for Children's Services, knocked on her door. They sent them, all of them, to uh, an infectious disease specialist. They put the boy on the drug called nevirapine. He was doing better. He was doing a hundred percent, a thousand percent better than he was when he was taking the drugs. Uh, according to her, according to him, yes. <laughs> according to the medical authorities, it didn't matter. Um, he got on nevirapine. He ended up in the ICU twice due to organ failure. What is what is nevirapine? What can nevirapine or viramune cause? Organ failure. It says so on the label, top, top of the label. They uh, put him in ICC to recover. As he was coming off of the nevirapine, she said, okay. Uh, a year and a half later, he was still there. said, we're not giving him back because you, Mona, you have a reputation for not giving the drugs. But doesn't she have a right as the guardian of, the, of Sean not to, to give him the medicine? Not if you're, you're dark-skinned and you're in New York City, no. <laughs> Apparently not. Uh, you would think so, and you don't see anybody else uh, getting force-fed AZT. You don't see people in you know, Beverly Hills or La Jolla, but in Harlem, uh, if you're a woman, you're raising these kids, these but she's kids are the, in she, the system. She's the guardian of the child. She, the, the child is, is the child still in the, in the custody of care of, of, of child welfare or anything like that? He's absolutely still uh, locked up in the system. He's gone from drug to drug. 
they no longer, and by the way, they're no longer keeping him because they say they said he pauses. Now they're keeping him, and they have him on psychiatric drugs. Now, they're keeping him because they say he's uh, got some psychological problems. Well, this kid's been institutionalized his whole life. Now, how old is he when they start putting him on psychiatric drugs? Uh, you know, he would. The, the deal in ICC is, is, according to Mimi and the other child care workers that I spoke with, uh, was that the place changed and it went from being. You know, she said when the kids were babies, they couldn't complain; they would just throw up. When they became adult, uh, sort of uh, young, uh, young Able adults, to speak. they they started acting out and they would just sort of throw fits and want to run away. That's when they started. According to Mimi, that's when the place became a psych ward. Thorazine shots became sort of something that happened. Uh, and Sean describes what he calls needle time, when you act out and you get held down and you get a Thorazine shot. And, uh, Wait a minute, they're holding these children down to put medicine in them. Well, I mean, you put these drugs in them. Well, that's the, the, I mean, the story from the child care workers is, like Mimi said, a lot of the girls there think they're doing God's work. And, and some children have to die to save others. That's sort of a line that you get uh, from the, the girls who work there, uh, sort of the women who work there. And, and by the way, from a lot of the doctors who defend what's going on, they, they won't put it so uh, boldly, but they more or less say the same thing. A few lives to save many, many millions. Well, that, I mean, it's not true. You're not saving millions with a few lives. You're just retesting what are more or less failed drugs and keeping them in the market. Uh, the, the, the end of what Mimi said is also true. Kids who refuse for a certain amount of time get a stomach surgery, and this is uh, to enforce what they call compliance or adherence. And this is just this is, you can just find this in the medical literature. They don't hide it. It's called a G tube or a gastric tube, and, and they the, do a surgery. And the pictures are on the website at LizBrown.com. Liam, let, let me ask you a question. Don't the didn't Sean have the right? to say, no, I don't want these drugs in my body. <laughs> you have to you have any right you want unless unless you're you know, unless you're an orphan in New York City, unless you're an AIDS patient in the world, then you're you're right. Just like the right of anybody, by the way, right now who we consider to be of a certain ethnic group, uh, I don't know, related to the Middle East or something, your rights can be taken away under certain circumstances for the benefit of the culture or the perceived benefit of the country or the safety of the culture. And AIDS is looked at as a con an extremely contagious sexually transmitted disease. Again, in the medical literature, it looks like a multifactorial illness, but the perception wins the day. So a little boy uh, who is the child of a drug abuser, whose mother can be, you know, whose adoptive mother, his aunt, can be typified as being crazy because she questions the medical literature. And she and, took him off the medicine and made him better. It can be stripped of her rights very, very, very easily and very quickly. And that's exactly what's happened to, uh, to Mona. But Mona got her children back, right? Well, no. Sean is, Sean is locked up in a hospital in, in New York City, and it's a psych, a psych ward. Now they, like I said, they're not even worried about the AIDS thing anymore. Now they're keeping him because they want him to take psych drugs. Why? Because he he runs away. He runs away from uh, Incarnation Children's Center and other places. And how old is he now? Fifteen. And by the way, he's tiny. I mean, AZT is a drug that stunts development. Uh, he is very, very small, very un underdeveloped. And a lot of kids, uh, what, what are called AZT babies, are small and stunted and underdeveloped. When we talk about small, we're talking about four feet. Yeah, four feet, one inch, something like that. You know, he's just breaking 60 pounds at 50 year, uh, 15 years old. This type of experimentation wasn't just happening in the United States. It's happening all over the world, isn't it? 
Dr. Um, Stephen Nicholas, who established Incarnation Children's Center as an NIH test clinic, runs uh, Columbia University's uh, La Romana Dominican Republic uh, aid centers. And, you know, there are a lot of people trying to do good work for impoverished people there. I think the problem, the mistake they make, is thinking that ADT is a necessary component of doing that. And that This is just this is just part one. We'll come back and finish the next part. But let's dig into this and let's begin to pray for our nation. But this thing goes all the way back and speeds all the way up to the present time. And what is going forth right now? This experimental stuff is gain of function research and, and how they do things, especially to the African American race. You know, anyone of color. You heard what he said experimenting drugs um pharmaceutical companies oh my god it just goes on and on and on but we gotta pray guys we gotta to pray spiritual warfare this is a war a spiritual war now you gotta wake up and start paying attention all right i gotta go quickly tonight so i love you guys and we'll be back in the morning thank you for tuning in to prophet nation autumn miller's podcast god bless